When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, Ashley here. As I mentioned on the last show, this podcast you're about to hear isn't new. I produced it in the spring of 2015, and it's about women in politics. That was long before Theresa May became Prime Minister of Britain, and even before Hillary Clinton had officially declared her candidacy. Since then, we've obviously heard a lot more about Clinton and her emails, but when I spoke to my first guest, that scandal was brand new. And my second guest, Madeleine Cunin, who's in her 80s, she actually campaigned against Clinton's Democratic opponent, Bernie Sanders, for governor of Vermont 30 years ago. Here's the show. Welcome to The Broad Experience, the show about women, the workplace and success. I'm Ashley Milne-Tite. This time on the show, women in politics from someone who covers them. Hillary Clinton and her emails. Obviously, this discussion of her emails and whether they were kept in a personal server is an important one. Does it require 500,000 articles over the past week in and of itself? One's got to question that. To someone who spent much of her adult life as a politician. It was a test. And in some ways, it was a test every day. But every time I passed it, I felt exhilarated. And she wants other women to follow in her footsteps. Coming up, politics is power. So why don't more women enter the arena? This episode of The Broad Experience is produced in partnership with The Financial Times, and my first guest is the FT's Washington bureau chief, Megan Murphy. Megan recently moved back to the US after 12 years working for the FT in London. I wanted to hear how she thought life for women in politics differed in each country. Now, neither country scores high when it comes to the numbers of women in parliament or Congress. The UK is number 57 in the world, and the US is number 72. Megan says, for one thing, in the U.S., a politician can still run on a platform of so-called women's issues, and that isn't so much the case in Britain. In the U.K., relatively few people dispute that abortion should remain legal. Here in the U.S., abortion is a raging debate. Many Americans think it's downright wrong and want to ban it. You cannot underestimate, if you're a European viewer or a, um, an Asian viewer of this issue, how much abortion still looms large. Now, that's largely because so many senior Republicans feel that they simply cannot move away from that because it does. it is still so important to the party's base. But also you have to look at it in terms of, and this is where it does sort of dovetail with the UK, but the wider debate I like to say about feminism and whether embracing feminism is a good thing or can be perceived as, as a bad thing and you get shunted into this sort of shrill woman screaming about women's rights issues. Uh, you know, that is still a very live debate uh, in the U.S. It is obviously a very live debate in the U.K. We saw it recently with Harriet Harman taking a pink bus around in Labour's early election efforts. 
Harriet Harman's deputy leader of the UK's Labour Party. This winter, she set off on an election year tour of Britain in a bus emblazoned with the words, woman to woman. It was bright pink. She came in for quite a bit of flack. It's a very fine line still between how people want to identify and sort of openly agitating for women's rights and women's advancement and how much there still can be a backlash against those types of issues among among voters, um, among middle-of-the-road voters, among swing voters. So it's sort of, I think, the two at play. And, and that's one of the interesting things, again, about name brand candidates in the U.S. is that so many of them actually have chosen to make advancement of sort of women's and children's rights, women and girls' rights, you know, a priority simply because you can still make serious headway in the U.S. identifying yourself as a champion of women's rights. I mean, you would think we'd gotten to the point where most politicians would be champions of women's rights, just as they are champions of men's rights, champions of people's rights. But um, this is still a, a very, very live issue here. It plays through abortion. It plays through gay marriage. It plays through a variety of different debates here. Now, any politician in any country is in the image business. But if you happen to be female, you know you're judged on your appearance and the way you speak far more than any man. Megan says the public obsession with female politicians' looks isn't reflected among actual politicians in Washington. Where it becomes a public factor is when people are trying to score political points in the media. So among friends, shall we say, or when policy is actually being discussed or when ideas are being presented or when um, people are formulating policy platforms, uh, you rarely see those sort of gender stereotypes even as an issue. Where you do see it is when Nancy Pelosi is making a statement and then someone says something about alluding to rumors that she's had plastic surgery or when Hillary Clinton steps up to a press conference and everyone says, oh, her hair looks nice. This goes on on both sides of the Atlantic. It is, I think, very similar and it's just on what people think will play to their particular base at any one moment. And I think that that will dog sort of senior female women in politics until we have a much greater number of senior women in politics, if that makes sense. And it's about attitudes shifting across the board from sort of the ground up, from on staffers, on in voters, you know, where people realize that it's an unacceptable sort of form of, of, discrimination is too strong a word, but that it's sort of gender stereotyping that really has no place in a current political environment. But I mean, that I think is a very, very long ways out from those sort of easy, cheap gender shots to to go. And and when, you know, if we do see, say, a Hillary Clinton candidacy in 2016, I mean, brace yourself for exhaustive coverage of her hairstylist, her shoes, her fashion. I spoke to Megan the day after Hillary Clinton held a press conference to discuss the use of her email accounts. This has been a huge news story, and most people thought Clinton had come off badly in that press conference. But I asked Megan, as someone who covers the political scene in Washington, what do the women who are in Congress right now, what do they say about it, about what it's like to work there and to be in such a minority, especially given how stuck in the mud the political system is right now? So I was at a dinner the other night, a roundtable of, of very senior women in politics, from congressmen to very senior female members of the Obama administration, um, senior female reporters, political pundits. And what I think is interesting is, particularly when you look at the American political landscape now, is the frustration with just the, the sheer inability to get anything done. And what I always pick up from women politicians, female politicians, more so than 
male members of the Hill or, or male. It's just this, why can't we just, uh, just how dysfunctional the system has become and how in part that there is a belief, I think, that this is largely due to the fact that this is a system that is still controlled largely by older white men who have been willing to sort of see the system get as polarized and as difficult to sort of move things through. And there is, this is frequently talked about as like, oh, women, you know, you know, if it was Lehman sisters, Lehman brothers would have never failed, you know, that women are somehow more pragmatic, you know, better at sort of shepherding things through. So I don't think it falls into that cheap gender stereotype, but there is this sort of feeling that a larger slice of women at the highest levels of American politics would diffuse some of the sort of rancor that you see and some of the um, really petty partisan politics that you see in Washington right now. And I do pick up on more of that just immense frustration um, among women politicians and, and and a willingness to vocalize a need for change, structural change, systemic change, change in how people work together, how people identify common ground, how people uh, push ideas forward and, and generate bipartisan support. So that's one thing she's noticed, this willingness by women politicians on both sides to actually work together to make things happen. And then there's the feeling that things have changed for women in Washington, but not enough. That this glass ceiling is chipped, but not broken. And how to smash it? Is it simply a woman in the White House? Maybe, maybe not. You know, is it getting more quality candidates put forward at a very grassroots level? Maybe, again. But I think there is also a recognition that sort of gender equality, both, you know, in the business world, in the political world, is the product of so many other much longer term initiatives. And I think that there is a recognition that you know, we can talk a lot about a woman in the White House, and we can talk a lot about the number of women on the Supreme Court right now. Uh, and those are all great, very public things. But the change that we need to have to really fundamentally change American political discourse relates much more to initiatives that will take decades and that are really about empowering women from everything from economic empowerment, social empowerment, political empowerment, et cetera, and that it's a multi-pronged program and and steps that need to occur before we're going to see true gender parity. Speaking of gender parity, I wanted to talk about Republican women. Hillary Clinton is the most famous woman in American politics today. She talks about women's rights all the time, and she's a Democrat. And when you look at the breakdown of women in Congress, it's about 20%. You notice most of them are Democrats. So what about Republican women? Do they even want to speak for women as a group? So this is a really interesting and tough issue, I think, for many senior Republican women. And one of the most interesting women, I think, out there right now on this issue is Carly Fiorina, who's the former um, boss of Hewlett-Packard and who is um, going to probably mount a 2016 presidential bid on the Republican side. And the reason I think that Carly is, is... particularly interesting on this is that she has basically willingly accepted the mantle of being the Republican standard bearer for saying we are actually the party for women's rights. She's anti-abortion. She says she has a personal stance on the issue because she couldn't have children herself. And she says a hawkish foreign policy helps women. She's adamant the Republican Party is the better party for women. You know, look, it's not an easy message to make. And 
people recognize that and senior Republican women recognize that. They recognize that when members of their party are making statements like your body can voluntarily terminate a pregnancy if you're raped. So a couple of years ago, a Missouri congressman made an infamous gaffe. Republican Todd Akin told a local TV station if a woman was, quote, legitimately raped, her body could, and I'm quoting him again, shut that whole thing down. Many women in the Republican Party were just as turned off as a lot of other people. But that being said, there is no crisis of conscience, for lack of a better word, among among Republican senior women. Republican senior women believe first and foremost in the merits of a conservative government. They believe first and foremost in the merits of, you know, a smaller state, uh, you know, a, a smaller federal presence, uh, you know, curbing welfare entitlements. That is their driving principles. But they do absolutely want to see the party move forward on its approach to women and how it handles women and how it celebrates sort of senior women and how it recognizes the contribution that women make. Now, back in the 2008 election, there was a Republican woman whose fame at the time rivaled Clinton's, Sarah Palin. She was John McCain's running mate. She garnered acres of media coverage. She was conservative, good-looking, feisty, a married mother of five, and a lot of people thought wildly inexperienced and ignorant about world affairs. But Megan says no matter what you thought of her proposed policies, Palin broke new ground for female politicians. People were really drawn in by this, you know, hockey mom narrative. And she, I find her, I recently saw her in Iowa, and she's still, you know, that speech that she gave in Iowa, I think she herself would admit, was fairly incoherent um, and is sort of a ragtag of line she's trotted out before. But there's something about her that really strikes a chord among people who love the fact that you can have someone with guns and kids and a Jeep and driving around and pointing at Russia and Alaska. I mean, it really struck to like a different kind of narrative about women. And I'm not sure everything about Sarah Palin, despite the fact that she's not nearly as prominent as she was, was necessarily a bad thing. I think it broke down at least some of the stereotypes about what women in politics should be. So I certainly think it was an interesting moment for women in American politics. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. My next guest is a Democrat. Madeleine Cunin was the governor of Vermont from 1985 to 1991. She went on to work in Washington as Undersecretary of Education in the Clinton administration. Then she became U.S. Ambassador to Switzerland. She's the author of three books, including Pearls, Politics and Power, which I just finished. Cunin actually grew up in Switzerland till she was six. Her family was Jewish and the Nazis had started rampaging through Europe. Her widowed mother was worried about what might happen next. She emigrated to America with Madeline and her brother. When Madeline was young, she worked as a journalist, but not for that long. She says there was so much prejudice in those days. One editor at the Washington Post told her she was still in the running for a reporter job she'd applied for, only to call back later that day and say, I gave the job to a man. 
She married in her mid-twenties and she and her husband had four children. She's now 81. So what induced her to enter politics in her late 30s? Well, I was always intrigued by the suffragist movement. And part of me wished I'd lived in that time. I just uh, admired the heroes of that period and the passion and the the unfairness of women being denied the vote and then finally getting the vote. So that was a story I would have loved to have lived. So with the birth of the women's movement, I felt I had a chance to do it. And I, you know, I had four children. I was a doctor's wife at that time. And I felt too confined in that role. And, you know, there were typical doctor's wives then who sacrificed their own careers for their husbands. They were stay-at-home moms. And I never felt I fit into that to that picture uh, the way they did. And so the women's movement basically said, you can do it. You can have children. You can go out into the world and fulfill your own ambitions. Of course, it turned out to be much harder than that, but uh, I always wanted that as a goal. Her career happened in stages, as most do. She'd been in politics for more than 10 years by the time she became governor. I was in the legislature first for three terms. That was a very seminal experience because probably the most important part of that experience was that I learned to deal with the budget. And that gave me an entree into knowledge of all of state government and also made me feel confident. Uh, you know, when the governor would criticize me or attack me for some of the decisions we made, I could fight back because I had lots of ammunition by that time. I just attended an event at Barnard on Friday where this topic of confidence came up, especially for younger women, and the idea that you can't just get confidence. I mean, you don't get it out of thin air. You gain confidence over the years by doing things that perhaps you actually never thought you could do or would do or would need to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. I tell that to students all the time, you know, to take risks, to step out to the edge of the precipice. And, you know, you might be scared. I was very nervous when uh, I was appointed chair of the Appropriations Committee, which, you know, controls the purse strings of the state, basically. And uh, one of the old-time lobbyists stopped me in the hall and said, we're going to be watching you. She says there's always a lot of scrutiny that comes with being the first anything. And then, of course, there were a lot of people who just weren't used to a woman being the important person in the room. At a White House reception, one politician went to shake her husband's hand, assuming he was the governor. Even with the New York Times, I was uh, invited for an interview with the editorial board, and we went in, in the side entrance, like we were told, and the security guard I was with my state trooper who was in civilian clothes and in his early 30s. And again, he just reached for him and said, welcome to the Times, Governor. So, you know, the phenomenon of the unexpected presence in a new role is very strong. Still, she did think a lot more women would become politicians after women like her. And she's struck by the relatively low number of American women who do that. Now, no one knows better than her how intimidating it can be to run for office. Then there's the issue of young women just not seeing enough women politicians as role models. 
She says these turnoffs are why she started an organization a couple of years ago called Emerge Vermont. It trains Democratic women to run. And you know, you might ask, why do we need this special training for women to get into politics when men don't seem to? And um, we teach public speaking, we teach how to campaign, how to raise money, and women still feel the need to be credentialed. Maybe it's because we've been such good schoolgirls. You know, we figure if you get an A on your test, then you succeed. And then when we grow up, we find out that the boys who got the worst marks are now the CEOs and senators or leaders in so many other fields. So I think women still need to feel they've passed a course to run for office. For her book, Pearls, Politics and Power, Madeleine talked to Hillary Clinton. In that interview, Clinton revealed when she was first asked to run for senator of New York, even she balked and said she wasn't sure she was up for it. Madeleine says she was just thinking the way so many other women do. Again, it goes back to our education. We think we have to know the correct answer to every question. And it is true when a woman doesn't give the correct answer, she's criticized more heavily than a man. It seems to expose that. But we can also say, I'll get back to you. I don't know the answer. I'll get back to you. And uh, I learned to do that as governor. I met somebody the other day who said, I'll I'll always vote for you, whatever you do. And I said, why? And he said, because I asked you a question when you were governor. You didn't know the answer. And you said, I'll get back to you. And you did. You sent me a letter. So we can learn. It took me a long time to figure out you don't have to give the exact answer to the question. You can actually change the question and talk about what you want. But that is a learned skill, which probably frustrates journalists. It does. And what about that other aspect of life that may put a lot of women off politics? Family. These days, a growing number of women politicians has young children. That wasn't so common 30 years ago. When Madeleine became governor, her three eldest children were in college and the youngest was in high school. And she had a supportive spouse. So it was a little bit easier, but... uh... You know, when I wrote my first book, Living a Political Life, uh, my editor at Knopf said, you've got too much guilt in here. You've got to to cross them out. So I think every woman who who has other responsibilities uh, feels torn. You can't do it perfectly. But I guess I can look back now with some sense of equilibrium that my children turned out all right. I mean, in the sense that they're happy with their lives. Whether they were traumatized at the time, only a future therapist will find out. Well, it's great you think they can look back on that time with equanimity. Yes, at least as far as I know. <laughs> but uh, no, and, and you know, we're, we're a pretty close family, which is, which is a great joy at this stage of my life. When you look back at all your years in politics, I guess especially the governorship, how do you view that time? And was it enriching and frustrating and many more adjectives as as well? Or how do you look back? With satisfaction? I do look back with satisfaction. Of course, the further away it is from my present experience, the rosier everything looks. Um, 
But, you know, it, it was a test. And in some ways, it was a test every day. But every time I passed it, I felt exhilarated. Uh, there were failures, but I'm eternally grateful to the people of Vermont who elected me. I mean, they took a risk. And, uh, no, it was a huge growing experience. It was, you know, the, the, the idea that you can have, have ideas, that you can have thoughts about what to do to improve the well-being of people, and then you can actually act upon them. You don't have to be knocking on the door from the outside. You can actually be at the table from the inside. And as governor, you can propose the agenda. It will be modified. It will be changed. But that you lay down the first marker is very exciting and very satisfying. She says you have power in the true sense of the word, not power over people. She knows a lot of women feel uncomfortable with that skewed definition, but power to do things, to affect change. She hopes more and more women will start to look at politics that way. Not that her career didn't have bumps, of course. She says there were tense times. She had her share of failures and it was tough to be criticised. And the reality that you cannot satisfy everybody which women still like to do more than men, I think, because sort of our motherly instincts, we should be able to make everybody happy, but you can't. And I think that's the hardest pill to swallow, to know that there are times when half the people think you're right and the other half think you're wrong. You just alluded to this, there will be failures, and obviously there will. And I, I, I think a lot of women are also worried about the ability to bounce back. I mean, can you talk about one and sort of how you coped with climbing out of that? Well, I guess the biggest failure was when I lost my first election for governor. And it's a very public failure. It was a tough campaign. When she first started campaigning, the longtime governor, Richard Snelling, had said he wouldn't run for another term. But then he changed his mind and leapt into the race. Most Vermonters voted for him. The morning after I lost, I thought, this is the end. You know, it was a very tough day. I didn't want to talk to anybody or see anybody except my family. A year or so later, she got a call from a friend who told her this time Richard Snelling really wasn't planning to run for another term. And I put down the phone, thought about it for an hour, and an hour later I said, I'm in. And I don't know what gave me the courage to take the risk again. I did know a two-time loser would be a real loser, but I thought that I had to try again, that uh, I didn't want to go down in history as the first woman who ran for governor and lost, and I didn't want to be that role model for my children. I wanted them to learn that you could get up again, and of course I was very fortunate that I did win and I shouldn't say fortunate because I don't want to ascribe things to luck. It was hard work. She went on to win another two terms as governor. So I said to her, passionate politician that she is, what would you say to a woman who's interested in working in politics, but they want to help someone else win, to stay behind the scenes? She said, sure, all campaigns need dedicated, motivated, enthusiastic staff. But... If you have a real passion for change, something that you see that is not right, that you feel should be changed, 
don't be afraid of putting yourself out there. You can really do things that you never thought you could do. I mean, I was very afraid of public speaking. And the first time I spoke in the Vermont legislature was on a resolution to support the Equal Rights Amendment. And I didn't think I could speak on it, but I followed a woman who spoke against it who got me so incensed that a woman could oppose the Equal Rights Amendment that I jumped out of my seat and gave my maiden speech. So you have more resources within you than you think that the most important thing is not exactly tactical. It's what you have inside you. Listen to your own voice and try to find some optimism in this pessimistic world. Try to believe that you can actually make a difference, that your voice counts, and then test it. Test it and find out. These days, Madeline is a professor at large at the University of Vermont. She teaches a course on women, politics, and leadership, among other things. Megan Murphy of the Financial Times is also a big proponent of women getting into politics. Despite everything she sees in her job, the relentless press coverage, the political lifestyle, the travel, the incessant focus on just stuff that does not matter. I mean, Hillary Clinton and her emails, obviously this discussion of her emails and whether they were kept in a personal server is an important one. Does it require 500,000 articles over the past week in and of itself? One's got to question that. You know, this 24-hour media cycle is incredibly grueling. Um, You are never out of the spotlight. You are subjected to intense scrutiny of your family, of your background, of your appearance. It's an incredible mountain that people may not want to climb. But at the same time, at the same time, having just had a little girl myself, it is incredibly important to have women, visible women, out there as role models and to have their faces and their ideas and their names and everything else out there as we all sort of move forward to gender equality and having it just not being a big issue that there's a woman in the White House. You know, that is, I think, the goal of everyone, where having a woman as president will just be the same as having anybody else in the White House. Megan Murphy. You can read Megan's articles at ft.com and check out all their coverage on women in the workplace at ft.com slash women. And if you do tweet about this show, please use the hashtag FTWomen. That's the Broad Experience for this time. You can see photos of my guests and comment on this episode at thebroadexperience.com or on the show's Facebook page. And if you enjoy the show, please consider giving a donation. This is a one-woman shoestring operation, and I really appreciate any support. Just go to the support tab at thebroadexperience.com. Thanks so much to those of you who've done this already and to my sustaining supporters who give something each month. Thank you again to April Leslie for her help with this episode. I'm Ashley Miltite. See you next time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.